RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. With me as usual is Brian. Yo. And Mike. Hello. So today we're talking about uh, an adventure we ran in 5th edition quite some time ago, before Nathan even joined our group. And this was the Wild Sheep Chase. It's a 5th edition adventure by a guy named Richard Jansen Parks. He originally posted it on Reddit under his Reddit username, but he actually offers this adventure completely for free on the DMs Guild run by DriveThruRPG. So, um, Brian, we're going to add that link to the show notes, right? No. <laughs> and as a reminder, you can get to the show notes um, from RPGLessonsLearned.com. Yeah, and if I was better about things, it would be tfradio.net slash rpgll081. I actually really need to go back and fix all those that I haven't done. That's all right. Hey, hey also, uh, side note, if you're listening and the audio quality isn't up to normal snuff, um, we're having some technical issues on Mike's side. It's all my fault. So uh, I'm, I don't have the discrete tracks to work from, you podcast nerds. So, uh, you know, you get what you get. Yeah, but we got to get one in the can tonight. All right. So quick impressions for the Wild Sheep Chase. And I'll go first. Um, I rated it a seven. This was a fun session with some really great role play that we'll get into. Um, even some intra-party role play, which is something I've struggled with, as you've heard on previous episodes. But combat just took forever. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts? I'm really, really glad we we actually had the recording of this one, which is kind of a rarity for us to go back and listen to, because on review, we had a really, really fun time with this campaign. Um, I'm going to give it an eight, because in retrospect, I don't think the combat was as sluggish as we think it is now, as we were feeling at the time, right? So listening back to us. We had a good time, so I'm going to go ahead and give it an 8. Brian? I have two minds. Like, as a game, I want to give it an 8. I think it was... I do enjoy it. Um, but as we pointed out, we actually recorded this one because this was uh, from a period of time when we thought we were going to post their games to, like, Reddit. And that was kind of the mindset that I, I was listening to this uh, from, and it was just not something we could post. So in, in that sense, it was a failure. Um, yeah, so just in context of the game, I think it was a really fun game. I would say an eight, but uh, from what I was hoping to get out of it, and it's mostly my fault uh, from that sense, I mean, it would be like a three. Yeah, you'll hear in the discussion to come, we are putting together an actual play. It, it would be an effort for us, is going to be an effort for us, oh, has God. been an effort for us. Um, it, it doesn't come naturally. Playing for an audience is very different than playing for ourselves. So jumping into the topics that we prepared for today, let's start off with the characters. So you guys ran pre-mates, which you then built on by creating relationships between those pre-mates. Let's start with the pre-mates. This is actually a case where, despite recent conversation, we were awesome 
with the premates. Uh, at the end of this recording, we talked at length about how much we enjoyed the premates, how good the premates were, even though now we're kind of down on premates. Have we grown since we ran this adventure, or were these fifth edition premates just better? I mean, a lot of fifth edition stuff is just really high quality. Which do you think it is? I'm going to say it's a little bit of both, right? So thinking back to this pre-made compared against other pre-mades we've ran, these pre-mades were of a higher quality, right? So my Druid build made sense. It made sense naturally. The The only place where I was a little down on my pre-made was it not having, I think, the full uh, spell descriptions on the character sheet. So there was a little lag time for me having to go back to an actual spell player's guide reference book to get the full spell description. Um, but I mean, it, it felt like a druid build. It felt like someone actually took the time to think through, make logical spell choices, logical stat assignments, logical equipment choices. And for a level four, you know, it, it felt good. It felt like a legit character. Um, with that said, I think we also have grown where we don't need to rely on pre-mades a little more. And I think that that we meld a little better with our characters when we roll our own. If, if it's a one-shot, I'm fine with a, you know, a, a pre-gen. Yeah. Uh, if it's a campaign, I want to roll my own. I mean, I played a barbarian, or I think it was a barbarian. Um, I mean, so it's not like the character was that complex, you know, reasonably speaking. I mean, I stood there and I took hits. Then I gave hits back. So, um, yeah, I mean, the character, my character was was fairly strong when it comes to just the the mechanics of how it was written. But I mean, I'm I'm not going to say it was the the most uh, uh, thoughtful character ever again because it was a barbarian. I will say, don't sell yourself short, there, Brian. You managed those rage mechanics very I was, well. I was always raging. I mean, it was a like a free action or something. So, oh, but you had to maintain your rage, and yeah. and we had a little bit of talk about how you can do that. But considering you'd never played a barbarian before, I think that again speaks to the quality of the premades in fifth edition, where you were able to run that barbarian and run rage for the first time ever with very minimal table talk about it. Yeah, that's true. It's just funny listening to it. I'm raging, by the way. I'm raging. I'm raging. <laughs> That is true. The very calm, cerebral commentary on the rage. You know, that that actually made me think of something, too. This was the first and last, but first time I'd ever actually ran a druid either. And yeah, I didn't I didn't struggle with those druid mechanics at all. So I think there really is something to be said, said about the quality of the, uh, the fifth edition premades. So all in all, a little bit of column A. These were just better premades. And a little bit of column B is that this is an older game, and we we have grown since we played this. So we did an exercise at the very beginning of the session where we created relationships between the characters. Basically, I had each of you, you know, define a relationship with the character to your right. We didn't roll on any charts or tables. You guys just made it up. And what did you think about that? If I could do it over again, I would have changed things. So don't you dare. So. I can tell by the way that I responded that, and I remember that I basically made a joke about uh, my character being in a relationship with Chris's character. I didn't think it through. Um, it was just a whim that I just said, okay, uh, you know, we are a couple. And that colored the entire game. For the better. 
Not if we wanted it to be a, uh, you know, an actual play. Oh no, absolutely not. But I, I think what made that game so much fun for me was was just a lot of the irreverence, right? I mean, it was it was a big slog on combat, which we'll get into. But but when I listen to the interactions we're having across the table, I think that twist on the characters is honestly what made this game a good time. So let's go ahead and tackle this topic, which is that um, for the first time we we had an intra-party couple. So we had both you, Brian, both you and Chris playing gay characters, um, re-listening to the podcast. You guys RP'd it as an old married couple. You, you did the old married couple vibe hard. Um, before we get into the, the gay topic, let's talk about, is the old married couple, is that RP that only married people could do? Was it informed by your real marriage as you two played off each other? Uh, it was informed by the media. How I've seen like old couples, uh, you know, played in the past. And I mean, it's not, it was nothing, it was nothing like my marriage. It was nothing like my relationship with, you know, Kim. I mean, so here's the thing. And it has nothing to do with the, the sexuality of the characters or anything just something people need to know about me. And I don't know that you guys have ever uh, noticed it, or maybe you have, I don't know. Uh, but a very um, mm, insightful and astute friend of mine, about 12 or 13 years ago, he and I were having a, a serious conversation about uh, you know life and things. And he said, you live your life like you have a studio audience in your head. And that is probably the truest thing anybody's ever said about me, whether somebody, whether I'm with somebody else or not. I, you know, make jokes, I, uh, you know, do whatever, but it's, I'm always trying to make a studio audience laugh that isn't there. I know they're not there, but I still live my life that way. So I try to perform in almost every situation, whether anybody else finds it funny or not. So is that something that you think we'll be able to, to turn off to record an actual play? Is it an insurmountable problem? So... I've got to be serious like at work and everything, right? Uh, but what I do when I'm serious at work, my humor or the jokes that I make, I tend to change. I tend to switch the audience and not so much switch it off. So I, you know, like I might have a studio audience. I might be doing a, a basically a program that's geared towards like, you know, teens and 20 somethings. Then I might do something that's geared more toward, I don't know, like uh, an older cr- – so I might go from like a married with children, again, to like um, – to like – I'm doing the Ed O'Neill thing. With to the honey mutters? Like, to uh, like a modern family. family. Yeah, so um, so I, I, try to, I try to change it up based on things. Now my jokes are all just dad jokes, but my jokes were dad jokes before I had kids. Uh, but I, I don't switch it off more so than I tweak it. So. See- I think my problem is going to be switching it off because I I don't do such a great job of switching up audiences sometimes, especially when I'm around with you guys. That's that's what I'm going to struggle with is that I'm in best friends mode and I'm going to have to tweak it up to work appropriate mode. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if work appropriate is the right mode. If we're recording an actual play which we were trying to do with this game, which is why this topic's coming up. Um, if we're recording an actual play, it needs to be fun. People listen to the podcast to feel like part of the friend group, to, to feel like they have these friends who share this interest, you know, while they're whiling away, away time on their commute. That's why I listen to podcasts. Um, I'm still to this day, am hugely embarrassed by 
waving at DM Scotty as if I knew him at Mace because I'd watched so many of his videos and I'd listened to so much of what he had to say. When I, he walked into the room, I felt like I knew the guy. And maybe there are people that feel that way about us. So it doesn't need to be humorless. It doesn't need to be totally locked down HR work appropriate. But we did make a lot of off-color jokes. And we're transitioning into this topic a little awkwardly from the the, the, the relationship that your character had with Chris's character. What? So I don't want it to come off like these were gay jokes. No, 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 no. Well, it's- these were just off-color jokes, and a lot of them did stem from things that couples might comment on about each other. So I think this blurred blurred the line a little bit. So um, it started off, yeah, it was just ha-ha gay jokes, like ha-ha, you know, we're gay characters. And, and not in a disrespectful way. It's like I have a lot of gay friends who make the same, God, that's just the most uh, pandering. Some of my best friends. Some of my best, but I have friends, like, you know, I just, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, I'm kind of catty. You know, I hate to say I flirt with my, like, gay friends, but I will make, like, comments that would be considered flirting if they didn't know that I was 100% heterosexual. Um, but, you know, like, it was kind of like that, where um, it sort of started off that way as, you know, just sort of kind of like uh, mimicking my, the, the gay friends that I have. But it did, the, the, the characters really started to develop, like, this old married couple vibe, and Chris and I were really playing off of each other. And it, it, sometimes it involved, you know, jokes that were, you know, like two people that have been intimate for a long time. But other times it was kind of sweet, really. Uh, I was actually kind of impressed in, in in the end. But like I made a note in my notes that um, I was really disappointed in myself at the beginning. I'm like, why did I go there? But by the time right, it was over, I was pretty happy. We're hugely blurring two topics here. We are. We are. Um Let's just talk about the relationship for a second. The relationship that your characters had. Look, first question. Was it fun? Did you have fun with it? Oh, yeah. Do you think Chris had fun with it? Yes. Why? Why was it fun? Uh, it, it was a chance to... Um, it was a chance to channel something from, like, our personalities that we don't normally get to do. I mean, it's not like... It's not like um, you get to say these kind of comments. Again, going back to catharsis, you don't really get to say these kind of comments, you know, in... Um, in polite society or at work or in most situations, uh, it's like Mike said, we were going into best friends mode and all of us are like, you know, having fun. And that just happened to be the venue, uh, or the avenue that it took. And it became this improvisational sort of exercise, uh, between the two of us. And we were really playing off of each other. And, uh, it was, I mean, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's, I don't get to do stuff like that that often, and I thought it was pretty great. So, so I, I think it helped make the game because it gave your character and Chris's character this this great you know piece of material to work with and play with. And at no point in the game did you guys shut each other down on oh, no. it. It was it was constant. You were constantly yes anding each other, and it just yes. kept that dynamic going. And it it, it made that game fun. I think. In, in in retrospect, if you guys hadn't had that character arc, that game would have been boring as hell. And it wasn't just it wasn't just like you know the fact that we were you know two gay characters, two gay men. Uh, we were it was almost like tr- trans species as well. So uh, I my character's name was Pug, and I basically played him off like he was a gigantic pug, like the dog, or at least he looked like it. Um, I don't I don't even I, I don't even remember what kind of uh, uh, creature. He was, but in the game, like we basically said, he looked like a dog. And we played around with that as well. 
And uh, it was it was it was a lot of fun. It really was. Um, and he was a drow. I was whatever I was. And so, I think I think the orientation of your characters had nothing to do with this fun. I think the think the fact that you had this strong relationship with another character at the table, and you had two players that were really open to making these jokes that are in. You know, comfortable marriages that have seen these sitcoms that have been were were able to play off each other and have this fun sitcom experience where you're recreating this nagging couple from Modern Family or or from um, what's that Fox show that you referenced earlier, Married with Children or The Simpsons or what have you. I think you had a ton of fun with that, and I I don't want to mix that with the off color comments because I think those are two different topics. They they are, but it's so. There's jokes, then there's the off-color jokes, and I, I guess I wasn't speaking so much to the off-color jokes. Uh, there were a couple. It's kind of like uh, there's a meme that gets passed around. Uh, it, it shows like the difference between you know a, 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 a new couple and a, an, an old couple. The new couple has like them embracing and kissing, and it's like very passionate. Then the old couple has uh, uh, like. One spouse like looking at a bump on the you know the the butt of the other and saying hey it looks like it's gotten smaller that's the kind of characters that Chris and I were playing uh, you were yeah and I think that was great and I think you guys were performing you made us laugh you made you made me and Mike the other two guys at the table laugh with your performance I think it was a good performance I'm glad you had fun um, I think it was tastefully done I think that part was fine. The couples, the gay couple, that was fine. What I don't think was fine and what the what the actual play couldn't tolerate were the off-color jokes that you guys made, um, like an old married couple in a sitcom would do about, you know, performance or bedroom humor coming into the to the nagging humor. Uh, basically, I'll just say it, dick and fart jokes. A ton, a ton of dick and fart jokes where it was really tough to have a serious moment in the session. And I, I don't think that had anything to do with character sexuality. It was just dick and fart jokes being made at the table because it's, Hey, it's the end of a long day. It's after work. We're all in a goofy mood. It's releasing tension. I, I don't know what the purpose was. Um, well, we just ask that. What, why are we making these jokes? Is it the thing with the audience in your head? Were we breaking tension? Are we just the products of a mystery science theater 3000 generation where Anytime anyone says anything remotely suggestive, one of us has to say, that's what she said. Well, that's what she said. All of the above. And that is what she said. <laughs> you know, also, I think, I think uh, part of the, the drama or the, the seriousness also uh, was broken a bit by the fact that um, uh, <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that uh, the, the sheep in the, in the game – uh, we we had basically a stand-in, which was uh, Dory, which is Mike and Liz's dog, and uh, you could hear uh, Dory. <laughs> the sheep ended up being named Dory by the end of the game. Yeah, but uh, so that you know that was going on, and then was it Marley? Yeah, Marley. And Marley uh, was also Marley made it into the game. That was uh, Mike's character's bird who uh, was responding. Uh, it was, I mean, so I think I think that sort of uh, made the situation comical to begin with. And uh, it was just so easy to fall into the trap of making jokes. Yeah, so we sit down and we say, hey, we're recording this for an actual play. 
We've got a dog barking. We've got a bird going nuts in the background, chirping like crazy. We've got a dog's bell going. Everyone's telling the dog to get down. I mean, just nothing about that recording could ever be released, both in terms of audio quality and the dick and fart jokes. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I remember, like, man, I would it would have been nice to post that. Of course, you know, in hindsight, with the dick and fart jokes, you can't. But listening back to it now, three years later, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I loved that, you know, Dory was, was in there and Mike had to deal with that and Marley was chirping every time. Marley was freaking out. We had to incorporate that into the game. I thought that was awesome. I, I think that kind of also relates back to a point we made in our, our last show, right, of breaking the bubble. I think my pets were breaking the bubble so much that 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 caused a lot of the a lot of the off color humor, a lot of the quipping. Now we do that a lot regularly. There's there's a few other episodes we recorded in the past that we've said we can't release because of the same off color jokes issue, and we maybe didn't have a bubble issue. But I think that's something to be uh, taken into account for this session. And, and one more thing, and because I have to call it out, do you think also again this was pre Nathan? But Chris was in there. Do you think Chris is the difference maker? Not saying that he's the cause, but like with Chris in there, the chemistry is different. Cause going back to um, the uh, Kataro game, um, we didn't have that. Not so much. I think it could have been the bubble. We played the Kataro game in a conference room in a quiet space. It was a quiet game in a quiet space. And I think, and also there were just three of us. So there wasn't as much of an audience. You you know if you if you crack a joke, you're pissing off at least half of the other people in the room, which is you know the DM trying to run a serious game. So it's not as easy to crack jokes. Whereas when the DM's outnumbered, or when whoever or, you know when when there's more of us, there's more of an audience to laugh at the joke. That's fair. So, long story short, we've got a, a tough row to hoe and trying to curtail some of our usual commentary to record an actual play because there's entertaining ourselves and then there's entertaining an audience. And right now the off color jokes, you know, you guys are entertaining each other and performing for each other or for the studio audience in your head and not for an audience. Let's talk about the adventure. So I ran the wild cheap chase almost exactly as written right off the page and it ran great. And I, I don't run adventures off the page. I have talked in episode after episode about how when I try to run adventures as written, it's terrible and I shouldn't do it. And I should write my own stuff. The only other adventure I've ever run right off the page was Dusk, which ran, again, which great right off the page. Could you tell I was running this you know, directly from a pre-written adventure? Did that come across? Only when you mentioned it. In fact, I think uh, I think one of the comments I made in the game was I had thought I had thrown the game off the rails pretty early by initiating combat unexpectedly with uh, the the first antagonist we ran up against, and so I, I kind of thought you were just making it up as we'd gone along because I had successfully derailed the game. I mean, honestly, I'd forgotten about you running it from a pre-made adventure until later on in the game. You're talking about how one version of the game had. Um, wolves and the other had gorillas, and I'm like, oh yeah, Dusty said this was, you know, a pre pre written adventure. I mean, uh, otherwise, it just felt like you were, um, you know, just crafting it yourself. So you guys followed the arc of the adventure really closely. You met the sheep, you got the scroll, you were, got to speak with animals, you found out the sheep was a polymorphed human. Uh, people came to collect the sheep. You fought them. You wound up back at the at, at the wizard's tower. You ran 
basically scene to scene, just as the adventure was written. And I was going to ask you guys if you felt free to act or did you feel, or did you expressly cooperate with the arc? It sounds like you felt free to act. It's just the arc pulled you. Yeah. So one part when uh, the guy showed up to collect the sheep, uh, we didn't let it play out. We just said, okay, Mike was like, okay, roll initiative, which surprised me a little bit because I think normally we would, um, we would, you know, try to, to interact and, you know, try to avoid that. We made the decision that we just wanted to roll initiative and go, and I thought it worked great. And I loved, I loved Mike's RP in that scene where he was the druid. He loved animals, and no, you were not going to get the sheep to harm it. That was the, that was decisive, and decisiveness is always good in RPGs. So, theater of the mind. This was our second theater of the mind game, and this was the first one that was a normal adventure because our first theater of the mind game was the prison escape. And that was anything but a normal session. This was a normal session, a normal adventure, and we ran it Theater of the Mind. Mike, is this the session where you fell in love with Theater of the Mind? I'm going to say yes, because when you listen back to the comment or to the combat, you can tell that we're going from player to player to player a lot faster than we would have in in map map combat, right? So. You know, it's it's somebody's turn, you know, of the map. They're going to stand up. They're going to lean over the map for a little while. They're going to look at some angles. They're going to, you know, count out six spaces. No, count back five. Count out four spaces. No, count out. Okay. And then, you know, it's, you know, you're playing risk with everybody's turn. They're trying to figure out how to take over Africa with their freaking mini. And and that doesn't happen with Theater of the Mind. And, and I think listening back to this, this uh, podcast or to, to this recording of this episode, it really, really brought that to light. Yeah, so one part, though, at least at the beginning, it felt a little awkward. Um, we were talking, we were talking about uh, movement speed, where we hardly, like in theater of the mind now, we hardly ever talk about movement speed, other than, you know, uh, can I catch up? Can I get there? And yeah. you know, we were specifically was like, well, you know, my movement's forty. You know, now my movement, you know, my movement's thirty. And we were sitting there doing math, and it just felt a little out of place. But again, it was very early on for us in our um, careers as theater of the mind players. Yeah, and I think, my, go ahead. My thinking about theater of the mind has grown, and my ability to run it, and I'm really hugely influenced by the the notion of zones that comes with fate. And, and you know, I've got these goblin archers in the distance. That's a zone, and and in my head, it takes you two moves to get there. If you're an elf and your move speed is higher, maybe it's you know one move. And I, I run things much more loosey goosey like that than actually quoting feet to you. But for our first theater of the mind game, I had actually drawn on paper, you know, the the guys shooting arrows at you. I had noted how far away they were, and I was using that to track how many moves it would take you to get there. And even though it was my first theater of the mind. And I decided to run it in feet. It still ran pretty smoothly, even though I got better at it later. It still ran smoothly the first time using feet, all things considered. Yeah, and I, I was especially impressed because I think one of the things that made movement speed especially sticky in this game was that I had an ability that cast a straight line wind that pushed players back and then pushed against them with their further movements. So for the mechanics in the game, the mechanics were absolutely requiring us to do movement speed math in terms of cubes, but then we were trying to, to justify that against, you know, theater of the mind. So, Brian, having listened to ourselves play, would you have preferred this adventure on a map? 
So it's one of those things at the time, yes. Um, in hindsight, maybe not. Um, I mean, we, you know, we had to get there to where we are now with playing Theater of the Mind. And while it wasn't necessarily um, as comfortable, I could tell uh, listening back, um, it, it's just, again, it's just a step that you have to take. It's an evolution that you have to go through. And would it have been more satisfying at the time? Yeah. But I'm glad we did it because, you know, we are much more competent players now than we were. So I'm a guy who tends to like the original thing he was exposed to. When I, when I'm first exposed to a concept, the original version of that concept will be my favorite and everything else will be judged from that. For example, my favorite Power Rangers are Voltron. The first time I'm exposed to a concept, that's what I fall in love with. My first D&D actual play podcasts were the Penny Arcade podcasts where they played in fourth edition. And despite it being an audio only medium, they played on a grid and they would say things like, okay, I move here. I move there. I move here. And even though it was my first experience with an actual play podcast and I judge all other actual play podcasts from those, all that stuff with the grid kills me. And if we're going to play actual play, it has to be theater of the mind. It, it just, it plays so much better. The audience can follow it because it's all verbal. There's no, wait, where am I here? Yeah, yeah, no, you're right there. Okay. And the audience is like, well, wait, what does here mean? What's going on with that? Um, I think it made the game a lot easier for us to listen to, even if we can't release it because of the jokes. I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, totally. I mean, I don't know how you would even go about doing an actual play on the grid. I think that would be uh, so frustrating to listen to. It would have to be video. You'd have to stream it like Critical Role. Yeah, and we're not doing that. We're fat. No. I don't want to be on video. <laughs> so, combat. Christ, combat took forever. Um, combat was 80% of the session. I just did some back-of-the-napkin math. It was roughly two hours of combat. It was two combats. Each combat was a little over an hour long. The actual gameplay and the recording was about two and a half hours. So, two of two and a half hours, that's exactly 80% of the session spent on two combats with half an hour of role play connecting it. That's too much combat. But listening to the recording, it sounded like we were engaged. Were you guys engaged by this? So I actually made a comment at the end of the game that I loved combat and it was fast and furious and wonderful and great. And I can only think, I can only think that I said that Comparing it to fourth edition, comparing it to, you know, the older editions we played where combat was truly, truly a slog. Um, yeah, I think problem with the uh, with combat here was that we just weren't hitting. We weren't hitting and we weren't getting hit. We weren't meeting ACs. So we slugged it out with like three or four guys for an hour. And it was whiff, 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 miss, miss, miss. Listening to it, it's obvious that we weren't frustrated, but if I had to do this today, I would hate myself. I couldn't do it. And I think a lot of it, we weren't getting frustrated with it, again, because we were having fun with the characters. I think that's also where a lot of the cross-table quips started yeah. coming into, where we were getting a little frustrated with, with how long the combat was taken. So Pathfinder was no better design. I mean, in fact, 5th edition's later. It's a later version of D20. It should be better designed. But combat didn't feel like it took that long. Were we just 
better at taking our turns more quickly. I think our characters, I, I don't know. I wanted to say maybe our characters were a little more simple in Pathfinder. We didn't have as many things to bring to the table, but then I'm the only one in this game that I felt had you know a complex character with a lot of weird mechanics that required looking up and figuring out and, and all that. I mean, I don't know if you disagree, but I would say, you know, your, your barbarian was pretty simple and Chris oh, played yeah. a rogue and he knows how to play a rogue. So he didn't have to look anything up. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm genuinely perplexed. So someone listening is like, what Pathfinder simpler than fifth edition in all fairness. If you listen to our show, you know that we played the beginner box flavor of Pathfinder and we, we did a one to five beginner box only campaign. So yeah, I think Pathfinder, the beginner box was maybe it was simpler. Maybe you're right. And I also think we've tried other systems since where combat's just really fast. I mean, my God, world of dungeons. The only thing I don't like about it is, is magic is the wizard. Everything else about world of dungeons is awesome. And Holy crap. Combat was fast. I just think we've tried other systems with different thought processes that aren't obsessed with simulating combat. And it's just, it's faster and more satisfying and you can get to the meat of the adventure, which is the story. So I'll say this about combat too, though. So, so the, the difficulty, the good, the good of the combat, you guys were challenged by this. Re-listening to this, um, Chris went down in the first session um, Brian, you went down in sorry session in the first combat. Brian, you went down in the second combat. Everyone was low on hit points in the second combat. It was pretty rough. You guys took a lot of damage in that first combat before you even hit the bad guys. Combat was challenging. Um, 5e in 5e, I successfully challenged you guys all the time. Listening back to it, was there tension? Were you afraid of a wipe? Were you afraid of losing? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I think the only reason we didn't wipe is that I got super lucky and critted twice in a row in the third combat encounter. And we took a long rest between the first and the second combat encounter. How long has it been in a campaign since we've actually said the words, let's take a long rest. And it's interesting too, uh, going back and listening to that, we didn't understand the mechanics so much. Uh, because, you know, we, we didn't realize, you know, what we got back, what we didn't. And it's, again, it's just one of those things where if you don't play something all the time, you don't, you lose the mechanics. And I think by the end of uh, Pathfinder, again, the, the beginner's box, I was really comfortable with how everything works. But now if I was to go back and play Pathfinder or D and D five E, I would be asking questions all the time. I think the specifics around that was around hit die and how that works with all So you guys haven't played fifth edition since it was either the Avengers game that I ran for you guys or the L5R game. And then we played other systems. I And that, that's been well over a year. I haven't played 5th edition since May last year. So I haven't played 5th edition in almost a year, which is ironic because 5th edition, by, by far and away, the most books I own for, well, I probably own more books for Pathfinder and more books for 4th for edition just because it's been out longer. But I've got a ton of 5e material that I'm not running right now. Anyway. Yeah, the uh, the only books I've really made an investment in are the 5th edition books. So That, that we haven't played in over a year. Yeah. What you going to do? Yeah. What you, what you going to do? All right, the ending. 
this <laughs> the ending could be accurately described as a downer. I let it end on a downer. Um, all of the people that had been polymorphed and enslaved to this, you know, mad apprentice, you killed them all. Um, and the little sheep person, the little sheeple you were trying to help, you wound up accidentally killing him too when you tried to use the polymorph wand to change him back. You turned him into a gibbering mouther and then had a tough combat at the end where you had to kill him into your point, Mike. You got lucky or you guys would have wiped. So total downer ending. What was the was solution? The rolling higher. I failed the uh, intelligence check. So, yes, this was a downer because it was all my fault. I was the only one who could understand the sheep. I was the only one who could relay the information. You, 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 you could read runes. Is that the reason? And I could read runes. And I got the wand. And we, we being me and the sheep, both felt confident that I had the skills necessary to unpolymorph him. And when I rolled my intelligence check on the wand to be able to successfully cast the spell, I rolled a one. Ooh. Yeah, it was <laughs> all my fault. That's funny. But we let the dice fall where they may. Do you wish I'd hand-waved it, or is failure the spice of play? No, I loved it. You love that we failed miserably? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so what does it take away from us? Does it take money out of our pocket? Does it, no. Yeah, it doesn't do anything other than change the flavor of the game. And the the fun of the game, for the most part, is the actual game itself and not the conclusion. Sure, the conclusion can be a downer. The conclusion can color things. Um, the conclusion could potentially save a, a bad game, but I don't think that a, a, a you know a middling conclusion is going to save uh, or going to uh, ruin a fun game. In fact, I'd forgotten. I until we listened to, yeah. until I listened to the recording, I totally forgotten. In my head, you probably saved him. Yeah, I, I did you that too. Did you remember that? Hey, so, so Mike, you, you listening to it? Was, was it a surprise to you when he turned in, like when he turned into the monster? I was like, oh, I started to remember when you failed the intelligence check. Yep, and then I kind of had those same emotions flood again. It's like, oh, this this is all my fault. But you know, I, I I say I like it because if we were continuing this campaign, if we were continuing those characters, that would have given my character a huge, you know, emotional background where he now had to carry around with him, you know, he's this now failed druid who not only harmed a sheep, but harmed a human all in one go because he wasn't good enough to cast a freaking spell. And you all survived. So I don't know if it's that you failed as much as it is that you just didn't succeed. Yeah. Like this was not a huge one-sided victory for the forces of good triumphing over evil. You know, you fought, you survived to fight another day, you ended the danger to this town of this mad mage, you just didn't 100% achieve all the side quests or all the bonus goals, which were, you know, saving the polymorph people and saving the sheeple. It was a big spoonful of feels bad man, and that's okay. Yeah, fair enough. So, long conversation about this game. What, what lessons have we learned? What lessons can we take away? Brian, I really enjoyed the byplay that you and Chris had, but you regret your your joke about your relationship. What would you change? What lesson did you learn? I, I just flippantly just said, oh, yeah, he's my boyfriend when given the uh, choice as to how you know, defining the relationship um, with 
uh, you know, the other character. I wish I'd have been more thoughtful. I think in the end it worked out because through that like improv and I love improv. Um, it's honestly a shame. I've probably, I've never gotten into it because I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, but I, yeah, I wish I'd have just been more thoughtful. I, I mean, that's my main complaint, right? About so much of my gameplay in the past, whether it comes to mechanics or RPing, I wish I was a more thoughtful player and I've become a more thoughtful player in the last couple of years. I think, I hope, uh, but I, a lot of it through the podcast, uh, but at the time I just, again, I was just somebody who wanted to, uh, you know, pick up a piece of paper, a couple, some dice and, um, and play. And one thing I didn't get out and this isn't a lesson. I'm sorry. Uh, I know that I've missed the last couple games with you guys, but listening to this really makes me miss using real dice in a game. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for sitting around a real table using real dice and really looking each other in the eye. Um, I think our our actual play recordings, despite the fact that the audio may suffer for it, they need to be in person so that so that that energy comes across. I think that energy and reading a room and all that and hitting on all cylinders, I think that's so much more important than perfect audio quality from recording separately on really nice microphones. Totally agree. So lesson, I guess. So what you're saying you regret, Brian, you regret being flippant when creating the character yeah. Yeah. because that was the butterfly effect. That was the flippant moment. And then now you had to own that moment had to for, for two and a half hours. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, again, I think it turned out okay, but I, it's, again, it could have been, it could have just been so much worse. Um, I could have completely botched the game. Or maybe the worst of all, I might not have revisited what I said at all, and it would have had nothing to, you know, no impact on the game. Um, as it is, I'm happy with how it turned out, but I wish I'd have been just more prescriptive in how I handled things. For me, a big lesson learned is the bubble. We talked about the bubble in, in the uh, the knife-to-meet-you game. Um, Mike, you made a great point talking about how the bubble was was messed up by... Dory and Marley um, barking and squawking respectively in the background and how that freed us up to joke. And then a lot of the jokes burst the bubble. I think the bubble is going to be really important to, to an actual play and has been important to a satisfying, dramatic game. So we're relearning the bubble lesson. Any, any other lessons you guys would add? Not that I can think of. There's something there about combat. And I'm turning it over in my head. What lesson did we learn? We had a great time in the session. We didn't walk away from the session learning any lessons. We walked away from the session having learned two things. One, we can't record at Mike's because of the animals. No offense, Mike. We can't record at my house because of my daughter. None taken. Um, so we learned we couldn't record at Mike's house. And we also learned that we have to really curtail the dick and fart jokes. That's what we learned walking out of your house yeah. after the game. Having listened to this, I think my takeaway is play lots of systems. We had only played D20 when we recorded this. Do you realize that? We had not played any D100. We had not played any Apocalypse World, you know, 2D6. We had only 100% played D20 for our entire RPG careers at the point when we recorded this. We didn't know how good some things could be, how far the technology of RPGs had come, or what alternatives were, even. So I would say 
you there might be things that you're nose blind to that you don't even realize it until you play another system. So I'd really encourage folks out there listening to try some other systems. You might not love the whole system, but you might take away some pieces and thoughts and ideas. And there are some things I would do very differently, even in 5e, to make this combat move more quickly. All right. All in all, good episode, guys. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned. And we're sharing ours with you.